Hello, welcome to The Books That Built Me. I'm Helen Brocklebank, and in this episode, I talk to Jill Dawson about growing up with a father who thought fiction was telling lies, why it's North American rather than British authors that inspire her the most, and how she got under the skin of Patricia Highsmith to write her latest novel, The Crime Writer. The podcast was recorded live at the club at Café Royal on Tuesday the 20th of September, 2016. Welcome to the Books at Bernie, and it's lovely to be here in the gorgeous surroundings of the club at Café Royal for the kick-off of the autumn season of the salon. And it's also really nice to see familiar faces. For those of you that are new to the Books at Bernie, I'm Helen Brocklebank, and I'm delighted to have as our guest this evening best-selling novelist Jill Dawson, whose nine books have delighted critics and readers alike, not least her latest the crime writer, which we'll go away with tonight. If I hadn't been a writer, says Jill, I'd have been a psychotherapist. So I'm quite intrigued when we talk about the books that are built for the writer to see what comes out of her unconscious. <laughs> but anyway, please join me in giving a big welcome to Jill Dawson. <laughs> welcome to my camp. Before we get into your the six books that you've chosen... I just wanted to talk a little bit about uh, the crime writer, because she was a novel. I mean, P- Patricia Highsmith is a novelist that, like you, is expert at getting inside the minds of her protagonists. And I just wondered, what was it that drew you to her as the subject for your latest novel? Well, the thing that drew me to Highsmith, I think, was a very simple fact, which was I discovered she lived in Suffolk briefly which is not that far from where I live in Cambridgeshire. And it seemed an oddity. That, I mean, I knew her work. But that a writer who I think of as American or, or perhaps European, she lived in Switzerland, Germany, France, but certainly I couldn't quite imagine her in England. So that's the premise. That's the simple premise of the crime writer. What happened when Patricia Highsmith came to England and lived in a village, a very small village, being the person she was, smoking, drinking, rather hard-bitten, seducing women left, right and centre, um, and tried to be sort of incognito. And it just struck me as incongruous and quite amusing. And I think that, that's the beginning. <laughs> it's the time of, a time of her life that's not that much is known about, is it? She has this mysterious affair with some London woman. And... Indeed, which one biographer calls Caroline Besterman, but makes clear that that's a pseudonym. And another biographer refers to this woman as X. But no, that she was very much in love with a married woman in London, and she foolishly thought that she could conduct this affair and it not be known about. And yet, of course, literary circles are quite small, and if you're Patricia Highsmith and you've got an American accent and... You're living in a tiny village in yeah. Suffolk. <laughs> it maybe couldn't be as secret as she imagined. <laughs> so we won't we won't talk too much about now because we've got a Patricia Highsmith to yes. talk about right at the right at the end, and I really don't want to spoil anything there. What I'm desperate to talk about <laughs> is your first your yes, first book indeed. choice, Norman Vincent Peale. The Positive Principle Today. Has anybody read this I defying, defying self-help book? Um, I'm just going to read the back. Uh, Norman Vincent Peale's The Power of Positive Thinking has helped millions of people all over the world to a happier and more positive way of life. Now Dr Peale offers a successor, a book which shows how to achieve a constant renewal of inspiration and the positive principle. <laughs> Tell me. <laughs> <laughs> Tell us. Why? Okay. Well, when I was invited to do 
do this. And I did say to Helen, what a brilliant, brilliant premise. I went along to someone else's <laughs> books that built them and was thinking very hard about which books had the lasting influence. And of course, this is from my childhood. I read The Power of Positive Thinking when I was 10. And I would have liked to pretend to you that it was, you know, um, Anne of Green Gables or uh, Little House on the Prairie. But actually, my home life was quite odd. And I haven't actually written about it. My mum's still alive. She lives up the road from me. So I have no wish to hurt her. Um, and I'm always quite discreet about what I say about my parents. My dad's died now. But to try to give you a version, The Power of Positive Thinking is a very, very religious book. And it's one of the books we have. It wasn't quite Jeanette Winterson, by the way, in my <laughs> own life. But my mum was very religious. And I think I was a very unhappy, troubled girl, and reading this again reminds me of that. And so what it's just suggesting is that you pray all the time. You pray here, there, everywhere. You're bullied at school, you pray. Your parents are abusive to you, you pray. You know, life will be better if you cheer up, you pray. <laughs> it is the starting point for just about every self-help book which exists. So Dale Carnegie we talked about, but actually Paul McKenna, Cognitive Therapy, um, self-hypnosis, Norman Vincent Peale, is the beginning of that. And odd though this book is, and strange though it was to revisit it, I did find that beside my bed at the moment, the book I'm reading, which is Cure, by Joe Marchant, anyone know that, which is being shortlisted for the Welcome Prize, is a very scientific book, is about the impact of what we think on our bodies, on our health, and our happiness, and the kind of provable effects. And so in a way that's also a continuation of this theme. So I have very mixed feelings about it. Reading it, I thought, what a weird book. But I'm glad I told the truth and chose it. <laughs> um, and then also I was thinking, but there's something in it, something about the power of what we think and what we imagine. And wait, you know, did it say that you didn't have lots of books around at no. home? That's think, unusual for a writer, you know, for a, somebody that loves books like you do, to have no books at home is... I think that's part of what the problem was. We had non-fiction books. My dad said fiction was, you know, ridiculous. He couldn't see the point of it. and We didn't need any in the house. So we had gardening books, encyclopedias, golf books. There, I can't remember any fiction, really. And, you know, he thought writing fiction was making things up, lying, which, of course, it is. So you could see that that was a rebellious thing to do. Um, and my mum was... It's very religious, her mum had been a Salvation Army soldier, as they're called. Wow. Uh, it was a big part of her life. And I was expected to go to church and say my prayers every night. And I kind of dutifully did until I was about 10. Then I stopped. <laughs> you know, I did absolutely think something awful would happen to me. Um, it was very hard to give up if you have been. Well, in fact, it's been a part of your the defining principle of how you're brought up to then reject that at a reasonably early age yes. is, is quite interesting. How did you do that? Well, I can remember saying clearly to my mum that I didn't believe in God as a teenager and it being, you know... Transgressive. In, yes, incredibly shocking thing. So then I backpedaled desperately and I've never said it again since. And actually, I don't think my mum reads my novels. <laughs> They're just much too shocking and upsetting for her since that initial shock yeah. of discovering I didn't share her belief was a problematic one. Going on your going on your own is quite is is hard and difficult and but maybe the power of positive print that positive principle had helped you have the courage to do that. Well, 
as I say, it's not without merit. I think just on a simple level, um, I'm now, um, I have a 16-year-old daughter. You know, if you meet every new experience with resistance, we were on holiday, just to give you an example, we were about to go on a dolphin trip, the boat looked lovely, it's a beautiful thing to do, and we arrived, she's like, oh, I feel sick. Ugh, look at that. You know, and quite often teenagers do have, don't they, that utter resistance to new and fun experiences. And actually what he's sort of saying quite often is, why not just open your heart a little to the idea that things might be okay? And possibly they might be. But the one that's helped me as a writer is the idea that what you imagine comes into being. Now, if you are a novelist, you have to sit in your room Imagining a world, a totally convincing world, but more than that, imagining something that will one day be a book. And today isn't a book, it's just some things in your head. So actually I think that that strength, the idea that what I thought about might actually be created, was a helpful mm. one. I mean, so that's what I take. I mean, I've read you've talked uh, subsequently about a, having a throb, a kind of pulse mm. of the, the idea starts to beat yes. in you. And that's quite, that stayed with me as a, as a metaphor, kind of the, heart, the heartbeat of the, of the yes, novel. Yes, so, so you didn't have, you didn't have fiction at home and yet your, your work is all, is, is all about, I mean you write, you've written non-fiction, you've uh, edited anthologies and you write beautiful journalism uh, for many magazines and newspapers. But when, what would the, where did you get your fiction from when, if it wasn't at home? Well... I think from school, so to be fair, uh, it's not as if I wasn't reading other kinds of novels, it just didn't make such an impact on me that I would be reading them at school. And I think also what we did have at home, which I didn't mention, was poetry. So my parents somehow thought poetry was acceptable. Less lying. I don't know why, <laughs> yes. And my mum knew and could recite a lot of poetry, as older people often can, and knew her Shakespeare, and she'd actually you know, often come out with poetic phrases. So I think that my love of poetry was um, more acceptable to them. And I did start off as a writer, as a poet, rather than a novelist. And that probably came from that time. But I want, so I want to go back, actually come back to, to school and the, the books that you discovered were, were at school, because your next, your next choice is uh, Camus the Plague. Has anybody read any Camus? The Outsider, or who's read, has anybody read the Plague? Yes, I because I did the outside of French A level. I did it really badly, but um, but this is this is marvelous. But this so this is so tell me tell me about find coming to to Camus. Yeah, I did French A level, which is why I read it, and I read it in French. And now, when I went to look at my French version, I was astonished that I could read a whole novel in French. I, I couldn't any longer. It seems sad. But what I remember about this was so that given that things like literature, politics, religion, feminism. Um, philosophy or any of those topics were a taboo at home. You could not discuss them and I would have been silenced if mm. I tried. And I was a very keen and talkative girl who wanted to discuss things. My teachers were fantastic and my French teacher was fantastic. So every topic that came up in Camus, existentialism, how does one do right without religion, how do you be a moral person, um, what do you do in the face of evil, and also the idea that this book could be an analogy for a topic, the occupation, that wasn't written about directly, was really interesting for a novelist. So tell us a little, so for everybody that hasn't read it, give us a little summary of what uh, the plague is about. Well, 
what it is about is this plague descending on Paris that begins with rats and then people dying. And it's clearly the 1940s and no one knows where it has come from. And it is clearly the occupation. So some people collaborate, if you like, and profit, don't they, and do well from the plague. Others, the main character, the doctor, who's based very much, who's Camus himself, um, but there's also a, a, there's two characters who are kind of Camus. But the doctor tries to do his best. He doesn't understand the plague. He doesn't know how to fight it. So he just does his job, which seems to be the message of this novel. That you have to fight evil any way you can. And if you're not a politician or if you're not able to fight Hitler, what you can do is just be a good person and try to do your best on a daily basis. Or oh, that's what I remember our French mm. teacher explaining. Rereading it, I had different feelings about it, actually. So, that, so what were your different feelings? When well, you the different feelings was, this is hilarious, because for years when I've taught creative writing, I've used an example from this novel of a character who's a complete perfectionist and who only ever writes the first sentence of his novel. And I've said to my students, <laughs> you know, stop being a perfectionist, get on and finish the novel. Or you'll end up like his he's, character. He's a, he's a brilliant character. Isn't he? And on rereading it, I thought he wasn't quite lampooned the way mm. I'd imagined it. He was more in, admired. Again, as if the endeavour to try to write well in the face of stressful things. Better than the completion. Yes. The, act, it's the act of creation itself is more yes. uh, compelling than the product. Might mean admirable. And I don't mm. think I'd understood that at 16. Or possibly... Our French teacher had not conveyed that to us because the character we were told was the hero was Ria, the doctor, who doesn't understand but does try and confront it. And it's also in the context. I mean, it's an, he's an ex, he's a friend of Sartre. He's an existentialist. He's part of that whole absurdist movement of French Nouvelle Vague writing in the fifties, isn't he? So that character's obsession with this one sentence about the girl, the girl trotting through the girl trotting yeah. through the part, is it the Bois de Boulogne or something? And he's always going, is it a brown horse or a grey horse or whatever? My son, for some reason, can remember that sentence perfectly. He's 16. He didn't do it French um, A-level, but he read it in English and trots out that sentence. He found it very amusing. And it is about the difference between, you know, should the horse be described by this word or that one? You know, every writer's dilemma. If I use black, should I use brown? Should I say dark? You know, what, what is the exact word I want? But if you do get too hung up on that, perhaps you'll never get any of the rest of the story down. And the thing I remember as well, and we did talk about it a great deal and does pop up in my work, was the death penalty, which you might remember that Camus is very much against and very vocal about. And so we talked about that endlessly in my sixth form. And one of my novels, Fred and Edie, is very much informed by that. So I keep finding ways in which things I was learning as a teenager did go in very deeply and sort of come out again at some later date. Yes, I mean, it's, a, it's, a, it's a book that really engaged itself in big ethical questions as well as more French thing about the futility of existence and yes. how, you know, how we go on. <laughs> One of the things I wanted to ask you is he's, I mean, when, when Camus goes to collect his Nobel Prize, he says the burden and honour, it's the burden and honour of a writer to, to say more, to do more than write, to do more than write. Mm. And what, what do you feel about that now, about that bearing witness. Do you, do you relate well, to that? I think that's possibly why it was chosen too. Given what I've just said about having this very religious childhood where discussion and debate was banned, I don't think it's that surprising that I moved on to a very ethical writer. He might have been an atheist, but it's still the big questions he wanted to look at. 
And I think because I wanted to be a writer from very young, from nine, from eight, I can't remember a time when I didn't, I do wonder where that came from. And I think it came from some need to question these mm. things or find a place to have <laughs> that debate. And fiction seems to me a perfect place to have that debate on the page, really, with yourself, actually. I, think, I mean, it's, a, it's, an, it's interesting when you read, I was, we were talking about Lionel Shriver's book, um, or mentioning the, the Mandibles, which imagines an America in the future that's bankrupt and feels very prescient now. It's very post, it's like a world with post-Trump. And it's, you know, writers can write things that journalists just can't because the truth is too difficult to get hold of and you have to take that leap of imagination to... Uh, to help people rehearse the big issues. Yes. Or coming at it indirectly. I mean, I think that's the message. That's why this novel, rather than the one everybody knows better, the the, the Tranger, because I also read that in French. I can't remember what the translation The Outsider, is it? Not The Stranger. Yeah. Anyway, I think um, the plague, the idea that you could write about the occupation and never mention the occupation was a really interesting premise for me. So very often I don't want to write directly about the topics that concern me. And there's a feeling that fiction will draw people in and make them, you know, feel things, follow things through, but you're not beating them over the head with it. It's yes, not it's not polemic. polemic and mm. You leave the space for the reader to draw their own conclusions from the metaphor. Is a, is a bear really a bear in a Russian novel of the Soviet <laughs> era? I mean, well, so you said that you wanted to be a writer from when mm. you were nine. Do you remember that moment? Mm. What was your first piece of writing that you thought, mm, I like, this is nice, I like this. Embarrassingly, I sent my first novel to Hodder, who is my publisher <laughs> now, <laughs> and got my first rejection age 10. Oh. And I, um, I illustrated it myself. It was like, you know, I made it into a little book, stapled it. You've done all the work for them, why didn't totally. they do that? I mean, yeah. So I don't know really where that came from. Did they write back to you and say... Yes, and I never kept it. I know it was a rejection, obviously, because it wasn't published. <laughs> but I didn't keep the letter. I think that says a lot about me. I thought, well, never mind. I'll try again in a few years. And I did. So I just kept trying. Um, so by the time I was 34, which is how old I was when I first published a novel, that's a long had way some from practice. that first novel. <laughs> yeah. Why? I mean, I think I made up stories, and I lived a very vivid fantasy life. Which, in the context of your of your yes. home life, is is yes. quite an achievement. I mean, I might have picked Emma Bovary. I mean, Madame Bovary, because I also love that. But what I don't like about that is how she is sort of judged for having her rich fantasy life. And to me, that's the failing of that novel. Why couldn't that be actually celebrated mm. rather than a judgment on Emma? So I fell out of it with Flaubert, although I've read that lots and lots of times. I th- I I I'd like to come back to that actually when we talk about mm. the Richard Yates because I always feel he's always rewriting Mrs. Uh, Emma Bovary. Yeah, but that's a that's another story. But it was so what and what was the you, you said earlier that this actually was the although you've been writing for a long time this was the book that made you think I that's what I want to do that's what I want to be. I think that I was have been writing and wanting to make up stories. But what I hadn't quite understood was, it's, it's curious in this novel that it does invite you to think about the process of writing because of this character Grand, who is fixated on the one sentence. So oddly it's as if I suddenly got it that to produce a book like this, someone sat at home in a room putting one word after another. 
And I think when you study, as we all do at school, books and literature, sometimes it takes a while to understand that writers might be living people. I mean, these days, on the syllabus might be Mallory Blackman or something, kids wouldn't have that problem. But for me, there was a lot of, you know, old dead people. Camo <laughs> uh, was dead by then. Often uh, tragic dead people at yes, the Bronte. Yes, suicides if they were women. Um, <laughs> something about that sort of sank in. Oh, I see. That's how you become a writer. It is possible. And it's great because actually the process of writing is something that you never, I never engaged in the process of writing ever, I don't think, when I was you know, gaily sailing through English A-level and then on to university. I don't think I ever sat down and thought that somebody had put one word in front of the mm. other like he does. I mean, I didn't have the... I read the, outs- I read the Outsider really badly in French. I didn't read that, so maybe I would have done that. made all the difference. That's my all the difference, exactly. <laughs> so from French A-level, what happens next? So I did go to university. I was the first child in my family to go to university. Um... And I don't think I necessarily got any help choosing which one to go to. My mum was saying the other day about parents going with their kids to their interviews. She said, oh, we never did that with you. And I was thinking, yeah, dead right. Never, <laughs> never helped me with application. Or it just dumped everywhere. So rather oddly, I did American studies. I knew nothing about America. Involved. I knew nothing about the subject. Law. Law. Me. Politics, history, thought and culture, film and literature. And yet... I'm really, really glad. I'm really glad I didn't do English literature. So why? I mean, why? Why not? You know, you're a writer, you're a reader, you're finished me off. I reckon because I was very, very insecure. Naturally enough, I think um, we've eaten that tasty. You might understand that I had a kind of bolshy positivity, but I had a very crushing family life. And studying English literature, I think, would have made me feel it was beyond me. It would have been Wolf and James. Uh, and the, uh, the, or whatever. the canon. And yes, and I would have thought, whoa, that's not for me. Death by Levis. Yeah. And I think it would have been frightening, and I would not have found the voice I wanted. Whereas, interestingly, because I did American Studies, and we read things like Huck Finn, um, and there's a great deal of emphasis in American literature on things to do with landscape, the frontier, which appears in my work, was my first novel, the vernacular voice, the rights to have a black voice, a working class voice, or whatever, it suited me perfectly. And that was the early 80s, 80 to 83, and I went to an American college, and I absolutely think that was the making of me. I'm very grateful for the randomness that <laughs> took me there. Well, is it, is that, that's interesting. We're going to talk about Toni Morrison's Sula, but in this, and I think I put it on uh, Instagram earlier today, she's one of the characters says... Um, we realised that we were not white and we were not male, and so we had to create our own sense of who we were. And that feels like that happened to you. Yes. Come across American studies. Who has read? Sula. Who's read Toni Morrison at all? Oh, it's fabulous. Sula. Just glorious. What's he read? Beloved or? Yeah, most people know Beloved. Remember, it was a film. Um, But this is a much earlier one, written in the seventies. It's her second second novel, I think, yes. isn't it? So, and another Nobel Prize winner, let's go with Camus. We can yeah. stack them up. And there. she started quite late, relatively late. She was in her 40s, wasn't she, Toni Morrison? She'd been an editor. It's quite a difficult novel. It's not an easy read, is it? It's a friendship between women, but it's a very troubled friendship. So it's set, in, it's set in a town called Bottom, 
which weirdly is at the top of a hill. Um, <laughs> and it's a black town in, o- in Ohio. Yes. And, uh, I mean, like all her novels, it's very, it's, you know, it, it is, uh, it's about being an African-American in a, 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 a landscape that's not very far away from slavery. Yeah. The 20s, it's 20s and 30s setting, isn't it? Tell us a bit about what, uh, what goes on. I loved Sula. I mean, this one was, when Helen said, you know, your six books, Sula's what I went to. If, if I could only take one book on a desert island, I think it would be this. And rereading it, it's so difficult, actually, and challenging, because it's heartbreaking. Tragic things happen, quite, quite casually, as we said. I mean, she, I'll spoil the beginning for you. There is a scene where she burns her own son to death, because he's an addict, and... She feels she's birthed him, she's done everything she can for him, and he's a grown man now. And it's a terrible scene, isn't it? And reading things like that as a young woman and thinking, how do you write about that? And make that not sentimental, not mawkish, exquisitely well-written, poetic, it will stay with me forever. I just thought it was an achievement. You know, I'm not at all surprised you won the Nobel Prize. I am a huge fan of Toni Morrison. But as a girl, I think what was going on for me was I wanted to tell what felt like very taboo stories. I think that's the thing. Um, and my novels do tend to have, you know, domestic violence or, um, oh, I don't know, depending which one I'm talking about, because they're all very different, you know, sort of stories that I feel are pressing me to tell mm. but perhaps shouldn't be told. That's a very strong feeling I always have. And so Toni Morrison, I think, was finding a way to do it that I thought was genius. Um, and it's like sort of poetry, so it's very aesthetically pleasing, and that was a big part of the pleasure for me. I mean, the writing is incredibly beautiful. I mean, every sentence is—I um, won't—I won't suggest we read anything out of it, cause, but every single sentence is really is beautiful. I mean, it's a hot—it's a book about female friendship, isn't it? So, yes, you've got the backdrop and the landscape of what it's like, what the African American experience is like, but this—you know—Nell and Sula, incredible friends, and then that this tragic thing happens that uh, thrusts them apart and they can't talk, they're locked in a conspiracy of silence together, which is such a narrative driver in the book. And yet, that's the defining relationship with their life, not their relationship with any men, or Mm. actually, unusually for a novel, not their relationship with men, it's the relationship with each other. And at the end, they kind of come back to each other in a or you know, acknowledgement of that importance of that friendship. I think if I'd been doing English literature and reading, for example, Jane Austen, there's so much emphasis on marriage and marriageability. I can really see that that was, I was a young feminist with absolutely, this was my plan, never to marry, never to have a mortgage and never to have a proper job. Those were my three ambitions, <laughs> weirdly. So things like reading Sula made so much more sense to me. It was about friendship between women. Um, And I think the books we're reading, we're probably seeking for some kind of mirror, you know, like, how can I reflect what I'm already feeling or or wanting? So I was not wanting to read um, Jane Austen. And I didn't, as we said, read Virginia Woolf till I was 40 and then felt ready to. And I think that that was right. But I did want to read about, when I was reading Alice Walker, all these women's press novels in the early 80s, at Tony Carter Bambara, lots of African-American women talking about being mothers. I was a mum quite young. I had my first child at 20, well, I was 25 when I was pregnant, 26 when I had him. Um, 
And so they were mothers, but they were still writing. They weren't necessarily married, just like me. <laughs> they were trying to find their way in the world. It just felt like a more echoing mirror, oddly. I didn't seem to notice I'm a girl from Yorkshire, and I'm white. <laughs> I found myself more comfortably in their world than mine. And is that a sense of being an outsider? Yeah, I think it must have been. I think I must have felt that I was not reflected anywhere in English literature. I mean, in later life, I read Beryl Bainbridge, Margaret Forster, or those who could kind of cover my class and my background. And then I felt a little bit more included, but not much back then. And certainly not by the men who were publishing at that time, with Martin Amos's or... Julian Barnes. Very, very Mm. kind of macho writing culture. The big advances, Mm. the new teeth, the Ian McEwan's. Yes, that was not a world that spoke to me somehow. And you were, were did you say you were writing for Spare Rib as well? Yes, I mean, I interviewed Maya Angelou for Spare Rib. Here in London, actually, at um, a beautiful bookshop on the Charing Cross Road called Silver Moon, I think it was. And I remember going to see Maya Angelou, and I was in the midst of a terrible relationship. I was always in the midst of a terrible relationship, <laughs> which is another reason uh, when we come on to Atwood. I mean, I liked her writing and writing for young women that sort of mimicked that. And I remember saying to Maya Angelou, um, were you writing this book to tell my boyfriend, who was very controlling, something like, I know why the caged bird sings. I wanted her to write that, that's the title of her book. I said, honey, you've got to tell him that yourself. <laughs> <laughs> Which is brilliant advice, and I took and it. You did you, and did you, and did you yeah, do it? that relationship ended, but then I just got involved in another one. You know, they were a lot for a few years. <laughs> mm. Experience is mm. probably good, the best you know, teacher. The best teacher. <laughs> um, and actually, speaking, so speaking of, of uh, Margaret Atwood, mm. boom. Yeah. Surfacing, which is another, uh, it's a very early one. Yes. Is that, I'm going to say it's her second novel. It is but her it, second novel. So the first novel. was The One, uh, The Edible Woman, which is wonderful. wonderful. Yes, also wonderful. The first one I read was The Edible Woman, but this is my favourite. And this is the story of a, of a young woman who's never named, is she? That no. goes in search of her, her mysteriously disappeared father, and she's with her boyfriend, and there's a married couple, and they go into the Canadian hinterland. Yes. I think if um, anyone has read it, my novels, this is the one you might see an obvious influence. I mean, my first novel, Trick of the Light, is about a young couple who go and live in a log cabin, as I did um, with my mad axe man who still lives there, uh, my son's father, actually, the 25-year-old's father, but we don't talk about him. What was it like being in a log cabin? Mad and scary. And is it properly in the middle of nowhere in a little yes, house on the prairie? Yes, it's seven miles south of the border of British Columbia and I always imagine this book to be that log cabin when she describes it and when she goes swimming in the lake here I swam in that lake many times and so I can't remember the order of events I would have read this beforehand but I perhaps reread it while I was out there and what I love about this I mean it is it is interesting if you like Margaret Atwood's recent novels you know this, this trilogy uh, um, you know in the last few years The Flood and Orison Crake and I can't remember what the third one's called. Oddly, her obsession with nature does is really clear in this novel. I hadn't remembered that when I reread it. I thought this was about a woman's spiritual journey. That's what I remembered. Again, same idea. A young woman perhaps rejecting men, wondering whether, who she is, what she might do with her life. She possibly... The man is very strange in it, isn't he, Joe? He's almost not human. She's wondering, I think, 
how to live on this planet and not use up all the resources. You know, really, really fundamental eco The men in, her, men in her life are kind of somehow absent, even though he's, so the father's absent, and he's, mm. in his own way, very absent from he her, is. emotionally very absent. And great descriptions of sex, I think, that are interesting when you're young, about how disconnected she feels from her own body and not really able to trust him. Um, and also, as you find out, there's a very good reason for that as the novel goes on. So the married man that she was in love with, there's a little bit more to that story. It transpires. But it's beautifully written. Atwood was a poet as well. Um, I'd read her poetry. I think I was very attracted to that. I was a devoted Atwood reader, right up until um, those three that I just mentioned. And then, oddly, they're not somehow, they don't speak to me. Why, why is that? I think... I, don't, I actually don't know. I think I liked the, the realism and the naturalism in these early novels. Um, but it's just a, a curious thing. I can't seem to find my... I have read two of them, but they've had no impact. It's as if I haven't read them. You know those books you read and you forget? that That's how I feel about them. Also, I, I think the other thing was, I was on a... You know, a, that would not have a shortlist for something, and I got to meet her. <laughs> and some of the sort of, you know, she has feet of clay. It was quite strange. Never, so, never, yeah. never meet your, never no, meet your heroes. No, oh. no she um. was fabulous. I'm not saying she wasn't. It was just an odd feeling. But. Yeah, I think particularly when you feel you know somebody because you you're so intimately involved yes. emotionally with their work, and then they can't they can't be the same person because you've no. seen inside their head, and we present ourselves fully clothed, quite. but not you know not on the inside. Coming back to what you're saying about nature, the landscape is almost another character in this book. It really is. And her descriptions, which were both sort of earthy and plain, they weren't sentimental at all, but incredibly precise. They interested me a great deal. And I think I was looking to her for technique because I think there's always landscape and places in my work that I've tried very hard to find the perfect sentence for that's the thing I do really spend time on and I feel as if Atwood does you know there's never a word that feels out of place she's a very precise writer I mean and Tony Morrison too I can't say yes. it because I've only read him in translation but that mm -hmm. your your work is always every you know, every book that I read of yours is about the lyricism of the prose the a sentence must be beautiful and sing as well as drive the plot forward and it's not you know it's that love of language is not often the case in a, in a book no. that's also satisfying to read. I think it does interest me much more than some writers, and I don't know if it's a good thing or bad, but how things sound. So I will say them out loud, or I'll listen for a cadence, or I'll want it to fall in a really particular way at the end of the sentence. And I think that concerns Atwood and Toni Morrison and Michael Ondaatje, all of whom I love. It doesn't concern every writer. But ones I've chosen, that's probably true of. I mean, how much of that is though is that uh, early poet in you, or that I early love of is. poetry? I think it's very hard if you have been schooled in poetry and if you read a lot of poetry, not to think a great deal about sort of meter and rhythm, just the sound of words. You read aloud when you're going yes, through I often your... do. I often do, and I often I was listening to um, Radio Four, and it was a book club. <laughs> James Nottingham. <laughs> um, who was it? I was going to struggle to remember who it was. But anyway, he was talking about 
um, what words look like. So I suddenly switch on the radio, I don't know about you, and I'm halfway through a programme, I don't know who it is. It's like, whoa, what words look like on the page? I'm thinking, ooh, I never really think about that, what they sound like. That's what I spend a lot of time on. So I think writers probably do differ. Vastly. One of the things about this this book is is the protagonist descent into into madness. I'm not spoiling mm. any anything there. I mean, it becomes quite horrific that she she drowns in the, her own head. I mean, her own troubles um, emotionally. Tell me a little bit about what what that experience of what you know what what do you think Atwood is doing there and what that means for you. I think it's brilliant technically this novel, isn't it? As well as everything else, in that she's mostly. Um, in one voice, quite a sort of dry, disconnected, third-person voice, I think it is. And when she goes into madness, it's quite a different voice, and it's first-person, and very, she's sort of like an animal. She suddenly is naked and kind of grubbing around in this log cabin, and everyone's left her there, and she's feeding herself, and she's turned into a sort of creature. And I think I absolutely love the idea that you could blend a kind of dream state in a naturalistic novel. And I would say that's something I like to do. I like to slip in things that don't quite make sense or might fall into the realms of the supernatural, perhaps, if the reader's attentive enough, but do it in a small way so they don't really notice and then we'll move on. And I think that was a, a technique I was looking at. How does that would do that, where you're in a kind of mad world, but you're sort of just about hanging on in there thinking she's still perhaps going to come back to reality? Is that when you because you you teach creative writing? I mean, you very famously taught in the uh, creative writing MA at, uh, at UEA, which I think is the the grandfather of all creative writing programs, isn't it? Is that something that you teach your students? I mean, how do you how do you convey that as a how do you learn that as a writer, and then how do you convey it to other uh, to people that want to be writers? I totally think that I suggest that they look at other books that they love and cut things up, and <laughs> you know. If there's a technique they want, look at how others are doing it. I don't think there's any problem with imitation because you will make it your own to suit your purposes. I think lots of new writers are afraid to do that or think that it's going to be derivative or they'll never find their own voice. I would say that the reading is what feeds everyone and being selective and understanding why you love something, why I love Atwood and why I've never been able to read Martin Amis, except for one book, Experience, his memoir, which I love. It's wonderful. But that has taught me who I am as a writer and what matters to me. And I don't like fancy pyrotechnic mm. sentences that don't hit the spot, that are sort of firing over here, but not here. There's something where things have to be earth for me. So I think we learn that through what we read, and that I definitely would teach. But um, my teaching is probably so unorthodox. I don't teach at UEA anymore. I do a lot more one-to-one mentoring because I could never tow any particular line, and I don't really like... The workshop model where everybody just packs into each other. So in fact, that doesn't particularly suit me. Brutal. It is. <laughs> <laughs> and yeah, I mean, those, those classes are incredibly popular. I mean, the creative writing as a industry has, has, bur- has burgeoned. I mean, it completely has. And I think perhaps within it, there are uh, now more opportunities, more room for people to do things differently. And do you know what I mean? In the last 30 years, um, something like 250 MAs in creative writing, and there used to be only a few. So that's the MA model, but there are other ones, such as the one-to-one mentoring or the Faber Academy. Or, so I Curtis think, Brown. Yes, exactly. Yeah. There, um, perhaps a wider approach has developed rather than the peer review workshop model, which was the only one for a long time. 
yeah, I think it's, I, I feel that might be a quite a brutal thing to do there. Just quick before we pass Margaret Atwood on, you, we, you mentioned uh, actually that's, that mixture of voices between first and third person in this. You, one of the things I've noticed about, about your work is you tend, first person is, it feels like your natural voice, and yet all your characters, all those first persons, are so unbelievably distinct. They're not, what's, why is that a comfortable voice for you? That's another thing that came through reading contemporary American literature rather than English, was that very neutral, third-person, knowledgeable, authoritative voice always felt beyond me. Because the second I wrote the sentence like, she walked into the room, I'd be thinking, says who? (laughs) (laughs) And I I wanted a question all the Mm. time. So when I could understand that I could write it in a first-person voice, like Huck Finn, which I absolutely loved, um... And just tell the story supposedly by Queenie Dove or Edie Thompson or someone else telling it, then I felt confident. And I don't mind there being multiple voices, there might be many voices telling a story, but none of them are this neutral authority, which is the voice that feels beyond me. I don't know who that is, who that person is. Is that, that might be the atheism coming out of you. Yes. <laughs> that voice, of, the omniscient voice of God, the author. It's too fearful <laughs> to take on. Yeah, yes. too... So the next book we'll talk about is Richard Yates' Young Hearts Crying. I hadn't read it. I didn't know it. And actually, I really didn't know that it's, although it's set in the uh, very early 50s, I think, isn't it? Or late 40s, mm. he's, you know, he's been in the war and then they go to university and then... They get to, I hadn't realised it was a late novel of his, so late, I think his last, second to last yes. novel. He's, he's wonderful and dark, and tell yeah. us, tell us a little bit about Young Heart's Pride. a Richard Yates fan. Doesn't it look beautiful as well? I mean, is anybody a Mad Men fan? The TV series. It's pure Mad Men. They're all based on Richard Yates' novels. I don't know if that was ever acknowledged, but there's even a Draper, Don Draper. No, there's not. He's not Don Draper. He's something else. Draper in one of Richard Yates' novels. Is that relate that Don Draper relate? What the, what's the wife called? in what's Don Draper's beautiful blonde wife? Betty. Betty. That's such yes. a such a Richard, Yates relationship. They, they totally terrible, are. terrible, disappointed relationship. Exactly. <laughs> and I just think that. So what I did was I read that Revolutionary Road. I think first, as many people do, loved it. But then I went back and read everything. That's always my habit, and read them in order. So I've read every Richard Yates novel at least once. And when I was asked, this one remains with me because he considered it his great failure. It had a terrible review when it came out by a friend of his, supposed friend, who had never written any novels. So they had been academics together. The friend had become a very, very revered critic, but never actually got his novel on the page. Yeats had become a novelist. He wrote an absolutely scathing review and more or less finished off Yeats's career. It's it is it's worth looking up as if as a horror. Yeah. I found it on the internet this morning when I was just doing is some it background. The New York Times. New York, it, it's absolutely it's savage. It's and given that Yeats was so able to savage himself, he didn't need anyone else doing it. And why I love this so much, so he's a contemporary of Philip Roth, um, and he's writing often similar themes, um, although Yeats died in 86, um, and he's much more blue-collar, so he didn't go to all these privileged universities. But basically, what Yeats always felt was that he was in the shadow of these people because he was writing about working-class people. And also, he's always writing brilliantly about men who are failures with women, as he was. He had three wives, three daughters. 
these the women always come off well. I think Lucy and the other younger wife, might be called Sarah, I think, who's based on his wife, are well depicted, and the daughter is fantastically well depicted. So he's really good at women. And the man, who was clearly him, Michael Davenport, is a disaster area from start to finish. And that's why I love it, because I think he's just sending himself up. He's exposing every humiliation he ever experienced. And I've read his biography, so I know a lot of them are true. And one of them, for example, is he, I taught at Amherst on the East Coast after I'd done American studies and etc., etc. And it's a very lovely college full of, you know, um, sort of, it's kind of one of those, there's five of them, it's not quite Ivy League, but it's sort of a very beautiful college and beautiful grounds. And Richard Yates had gone for a job there that he dearly needed, a creative writing teaching job. And then he disgraced himself at the interview, got drunk, picked a fight, I think he actually maybe punched the one person in the interview who had loved his work. And that's so Richard Yates, so self-sabotaging, so self-defeating. And he kind of puts that scene in, doesn't he? He's always punching people in this novel, the wrong yeah. people. Getting drunk. Embarrassing himself, not getting it up, getting a lovely young wife and then not being able to have sex with her. I just think he's... It's so painful and so poignant and beautifully written. But interestingly, the reason I chose this as well, I think it's a masterclass in a writer's life because the goalposts keep changing. He wants to be a writer and he's very worried about whether he has any talent. And and think, oh, Michael Davenport, the yes, main character. the, the main yeah. character. And I think and many he, writers... And he wants to be writer so badly, he refuses to take his... Well, he marries this beautiful heiress and then he refuses to take her money. She's going... Um, honey, I'm a millionaire. We can just live yes. on my, you know, and then you can write all the time because we've got plenty of money. Nope, nope. I'm going to support us. I must get there by my yes. own endeavours. He doesn't, and it's it's a big mistake in a way. And I just think he keeps sort of talking about the idea of a real artist. What is a real artist? And there's a character who, at first, is being dismissed. He's actually an artist, a commercial artist. His work being too commercial. And then by the end of the novel, everyone's praising this person and the sort of goalposts have changed about who is the real artist, who do we admire and I feel as if that was Yeats pondering that too about what is the value of the work he's doing, will his work be respected, I mean one little anecdote I know about him that always makes me sort of I don't know whether it makes me sad or pleased finally for him is that he never got a story accepted in the New Yorker and he tried really hard throughout his life and after his death, when he was re-evaluated, and certainly the stars say Richard Yates is marvellous, he did have a story accepted. And his middle daughter, Monica, went downstairs to where his ashes were kept in an urn and sort of shook them and said, way to go, Dad, you know, <laughs> finally in the New Yorker. And I thought, yes, he would get there eventually, but not in his lifetime. How sad. That's, I mean, that's a well-worn path, though, isn't it? I mean, look at Fitzgerald, who yes. always believed The Great Gatsby was his greatest novel, and yet it sold about 2,000 yeah. copies, nothing. And then, and he died a disappointed man, and only now is he the great man of American 20th century writing. Yeah. So It is, and I think he's actually referenced early on in this novel as well. There's a mention, isn't there, of um, The Great Gatsby? Yes. So Yeats would be very aware of that, and he's clinging to that story as well, I think. Like, you know, yes. Maybe I'll still be a great artist. And then he's like, no, maybe I won't. Maybe I'm rubbish. I mean, that just seems to go on throughout this novel. 
He's really good at nailing those incredible, the disappointments and dissatisfactions of not coming up to your own standards as an as an artist. And I think that's partly about the and those those goalposts you're talking about are, are part of that too. They're, yes. And they're suburban. It's this. They're self. He writes very self-sabotaging characters. He does. I think he's also a little bit. There's two characters in here, a bit like him. There's a Carl Trainer, the creative writing teacher, who's also insecure and, and terribly shy and not a good teacher, but he's quite good at getting off with women. So I think <laughs> Richard Yates is sharing out his traits between the male characters in order to explore them. And he's not likable either. And he's not presented as likable. You're not supposed to admire him. Um, but what I think is he's so good at, and I kind of think it's in all his novels, is this nailing of embarrassment. So the not coming up to your own standards artistically is also just embarrassing yourself socially and making there's a yeah, brilliant. There's, um, there's an artist here, and he meets this guy who looks like some you know working working man and, yes. until he realizes that every picture that he he does it's accepted by the Museum of Modern Art. Yes. So he reveres him, and he goes round to the house. You were talking about that earlier, and they they want to be friends because they've got a lot of artistic credibility. And, and then there's just this embarrassing scene because he's been invited to stay for dinner and this guy starts to show him his little toy soldiers. And so they get the soldiers out and the Michael Davenport character wants to pull the carpet up to make room and he pulls the carpet up and all the car, the tacks, the carpet tacks come flying up and the wife is furious. And they're actually at this point, or they're not later, very poor and she's sort of hiding it. The and exposure of that poverty is excruciating humiliation that she has such a painful scene and then his wife's angry with him for embarrassing them and it just feels so real as if that Richard Yates must have experienced it I'm sure or something similar but it's also capturing how easy it is to make a gaffe socially which I think is very interesting as subject matter and Yes, how hard it is to capture it in writing in a way that makes people sympathetic. So who else, who else does it well, do you think? Well, I can't think of anyone. Perhaps Beryl Bainbridge, another writer I like, is quite good at sort of getting discomfort. But I think Yeats is funnier on those subjects. I mean, he does it with a black humour um, so that you, you don't know whether to laugh or cry. So I, this is, um, I said, it's the only second Yeats book I've read, Revolutionary Road. I had never realised that he was, he's actually very, has a very facile ability with humour. He's very, he is funny. I had missed that because Revolutionary Road is yes. so painful and so bleak. And this devastating marriage in suburban America, um, which and the shades of that in here, but that, that humour is well, a bit of a saviour. The same daughter who was probably the one who is most loyal to Yeats, said that people find, which you heard again and again the idea his work's too bleak, so if you know Revolutionary Road, you might think that, but she says he makes people happy if good writing makes them happy. And I agree with that, that beyond the sort of subject matter, there's often a real hit from the prose where you think, wow, that's a great line, or that's a funny line, or boy, he really nailed that feeling with such an undercurrent. I was just thinking today about there's a scene in this where the wife and he are hugging towards the end of their relationship. And he just says a strange thing about, did he step on her toe? Or something about this hug. And he says, it's the most awkward embrace 
we've ever had. And I sort of thought, yeah, I know that feeling where you don't know what went wrong. But you know, You're moving away end. from someone yeah. and it just wasn't comfortable. Is that, is that the moment that he realises their relationship is, is over? It's not just that she's, gone, she's going to see a psychiatrist, so he... He's afraid of, isn't he? He's afraid because he suspects that she's going to find him out as being the no-hoper that he knows he is or yes. feels he is. Yes, it is the point where I think he's acknowledging it's over, even though that might happen yeah. later. Yeah, because that, that intimacy is there. He's very... The, the thing that I noticed about, about reading, reading it was something that I noticed in your book. So he leaves a lot of room for the reader, which is something that I've... I mean, in the, in the books that I've read of yours, you really, really do. How, how much of a sense of the reader that is, will to come do you have when you're writing to be able to do that? Yes, it's a funny one, because I, I love that when I find it. I like a writer who will respect my ability to feel my way into the characters and who will say little. I like, often I choose slimmer works, like I could have also chosen Beryl Bainbridge, who writes very slim novels. Um, so I don't like overwriting and masses and masses of exposition. And so I think I, the technique, I mean, I think as a writer you write the books you want to read. So the feeling I have is... You know, yes, leave me alone to feel something on this page. I mean, this fantastic set piece in here where the character of Lucy is seduced by such a manipulative, horrible person, although you don't know that, you sort of fall for him as she does. And then at the very end, she realises she didn't even know his real name. And he suddenly appears at the window and tells her it. And I've reread that set piece and think there's so much in it, but it's not explained very much more full of feeling precisely because it isn't. So I feel that's what I love and possibly that's why I like to do it. But I think when I'm writing I have very little sense of the reader. I almost pretend none exists. I have a sense of the reader afterwards. During the writing it's just me, I pretend. Myself. You in your conversation with your <laughs> yes. with yourself. Yes. I, I think something like that is going on. Because it's a I mean it's a, a feature of books that I really love where the where the author is quite absent and it's such a skill to do that. And I wonder how where does your ego go when you're when you're writing? Because you are I mean, beautifully absent from your books. You're you're you know, you've talked a bit about not having that third person that you know, the person that comes in and goes, she walked into the room. You know, you know, you're not the puppet master, you're not present. How how do you do that? Or I is it just something you do? <laughs> yes, I think it's really one of the things that's hard to explain. But is it the, when Richard Yates says in this novel that he hates fiction, where you know that really the author is speaking through the characters and you're supposed to agree with every line and it's what the author thinks and what you should be thinking. I agree with him that I don't like that. I don't like the sort of pedantic or polemical feeling that I know exactly what the author thinks and I might as well just read a non-fiction book by this person. Why not have some real people saying some real things as people do and it not always making perfect sense and I suppose that's what I aspire to. It can be disconcerting. People might want more certainty and want an author to tell them how to feel about a character and I'll often just leave it. Are you supposed to like Edie Thompson? I've been asked over and over again, and I'll say I like her when I was writing it. She's a she's hanged. Yeah. I don't say she's a murderess. She's accused of murder. But whether you're supposed to like her, I leave to you. <laughs> and um, I prefer that kind of writing. Unlike um, Patricia Highsmith, you know, you know from the biographical writing one's read about her, she's 
often yeah. deeply. One of her biographers says she was a horrible person. I'm paraphrasing, but it's something yeah. like that, isn't it? And but actually, you're you don't you don't do that. And there's no there's not you don't say that in your book. You allow her to to come out, and that's something that Yates does. Yeah, really beautifully. Well. And very sadly, we're going to come on to your your last book, which fittingly is Patricia Highsmith's Deep Water. Who who's read? Who's read Miss Patricia Highsmith? Who's seen Who's seen the Times of Miss Ripley's film and Grace? Carol. Carol. Also, the Two Faces of January, which people forget is a, is a Highsmith, and Hitchcock's Strangers on a Train is also a Highsmith novel. Mm. So but this one. This Whoa. one is great. This so give us give fun. us a little give us a little rundown about of the, uh, of the plot. Highsmith at her absolute best, I think. It's something like her fifth novel. I like the first sort of six or seven the best. There's twenty two of them in total. And in this one you have this character, Vic, who's presented to you as if he's perfectly sane as he's sort of supposed to be, I suppose. And he's at a party and his wife's behaving badly and she's a horrendous flirt, clearly having affairs, having affairs throughout this novel. And he's just sitting, staring and fantasising about, you know, he doesn't care. He sort of conveys, but boy, does he care. And as the novel goes on, I don't know how much to spoil the plot for you, but he does start to bump off these lovers of hers, (laughs) Um, while seeming also still not to care. And she begins to suspect it. And it's a I think it's absolutely brilliant because you're never ever told what he is feeling. All of this is just conveyed through action and surface. But it's done so well that you really know what's going on underneath. It's very flat in the typical Highsmith way. Quite deadpan, I would mm. say, her style is. It's been described as, uh, as dull as a relentless headache, her prose. And I agree in places it can be. So although she can be lyrical, she can also be plodding. But it gets you in its grip and it never lets go. And it's very sort of sexy, don't you think? It's pretty... Because it's, it's <laughs> I read that thing about her writing being... Um, it's like a headache. And actually, it's I don't find that. I, what I find is it's that kind of banality of evil. Mm. I mean, it's... She's very... The psychology of evil is something that she's incredibly good at. He's a, Vic is a sociopath. And the... Which you don't really know. He does he does seem like this very good human person who knows his wife is very flirtatious and gorgeous and fabulous. She, yeah. But you know, but why wouldn't you? You know, because she's so beautiful and he's fine fine with it. And then he tells people he's bumped off, or he hints oh, yes. that he's bumped off. He starts off by saying one of, he has. Yes, mm-hmm. so letting the rumor spread, even though he hasn't. Yes, and he's just it is master it's masterly the kind of that idea of character as plot and plot as character is something that she does really really well and it's really addictive i think that's what happens with Highsmith novels if you love them i mean they are a particular taste but it seems to me you can't sort of not finish it and also having read one i sort of immediately want to go and find another one and read it and i think what the addictiveness is is something that you stay very much in his perspective and so in an odd way you don't want him to be found out i mean there's a real Chase you sympathise with her, with her, with her baddies. Yes, yes. He's, she always achieves that, doesn't she? Yeah, so think. clever. Mm. How does she do that? Well, I think because she sympathises with them, which is absolutely clear. She loves them, and I think she was very defensive about Vic. So when I wrote my novel, not that we're moving on to that yet, but I spoke to Ronald Blythe, who knew Highsmith very well, and in one of his letters, he'd said that when people attacked Vic, 
and called him a sociopath. She well, at least he gets up and does something. You know? <laughs> <laughs> she was very defensive of him. <laughs> and also, he loves his snails, as she did. She loved her snails. So she gave him a trait that was her own. Um, and but it becomes part of his kind of slightly creepy fascination, mm. this keeping his snails in the... I, would, I, think, I don't think it's going to spoil anything if we talk about no. when uh, one of the lovers comes round and he's got some continental manners, hasn't he? Yes. And wants to eat snails. Yes. <laughs> and it's a brilliant, brilliant scene because you might think, so they're mocking Vic because he doesn't want his snails to be eaten. He says, no, they're pets. You know, I can't believe you want to eat them. <laughs> and it might be that the reader is invited to find him creepy, pitiful, stupid, but instead I think it's a terrible moment where we think, don't eat, eat the snail. snail. <laughs> he loves those snails. Yeah, how wicked of you. And interestingly, Highsmith said that in order to imagine how it might be to commit a murder, she went into the garden and crushed one of her snails, <gasps> which she loved, and then she really cried. So I think she is looking at that very thought, how does it feel to kill something? Uh, especially if it's something you love. And it's a really strange thing to do, like method writing. But it's typical <laughs> of her, actually. And it is, I think, the, the scene that, maybe just the one before, I can't remember where the scene arrives, where what Vic is doing, so one of her lovers comes over, Melinda is his wife, and they're dancing together. And he stays up. They keep saying, Vic, you're not going off to bed. You're not going to room. No, no, I'm fine here. So sort of folds his arms, reads the paper, stays in the room with them <laughs> to see who's got the greatest staying power. And they put music on. They dance. He makes them drink. The, the would-be lover gets drunker and drunker. And Vic is really enjoying thinking, yeah, I'll outlive you. I'll, you know, I'll sort of still be awake at 5 a.m. And he's kind of making him eggs at 5 a.m., isn't and he? And he has them under the microscope, like like his, yes, know, like, like the things he has in the specimens. It's just really, and I do think it's great fun in a, in a sort of mischievous and, and wicked way as I well. Mean, she, it's that sympathy that she makes you have with somebody, with the baddie, that you should not, you can, you shouldn't really like this man. I shouldn't be on his, I shouldn't be rooting for this terrible murderer, but I can totally see how he did it. You can understand how she does it. I mean, that's, how does she, where does that understanding of that, of that criminal mind come from, or the kind of the deep psychological uh, sympathy, you know, the, the understanding, I suppose? Well, Highsmith herself, is clearly from her biographies a very dark and troubled character and was probably um, we describe as alcoholic, I'm not sure she'd accept that, but I think that's true, um, and had some sort of vaguely borderline psychotic instances. She often wondered whether she was sane. So she had a great deal of sympathy with people who were on some kind of border of sanity, which is where she felt she might reside. And when she was a girl, if you'd had her here doing the books that built her, I kind of know which ones they would be. One would be Dostoevsky's Crime and Punishment, which she adored and reread every year. And that's obviously about a murderer wondering whether to commit a murder. She also liked Camus very much. But when she was a girl, she read Carl Menninger, who is an early psychologist, writing about the human condition. And that's what she read repeatedly. And she found them fascinating. And they were case studies of mad people, except that his definition of mad people was, of course, a product of his time. So, for example, two girls who were in love with each other were considered very mad indeed. 
and Highsmith knew she loved girls from a very young age. So she was trying to figure out, well, is madness a social construct then? Is it a real thing? Would a lesbian have been considered insane once? And it is interesting to question those things. So she might argue, I don't think she would, but um, I think the novel makes a kind of argument, that there's a kind of sanity to Vic. He's mm. trying to rid himself of a problem, which is his wife's lovers. And this seems like a good solution to him. <laughs> <laughs> and to the reader. Yes, oddly. And to us as we read. I so is this, is this your, your favourite of hers? Because I know that you, you, you told me that you become, when you like a writer, you become yeah. obsessed by yeah. them. I think I don't have a favourite. It's incredibly hard to choose. I love that one, and there's four or five of them I love. I do love Carol, which was published as The Price of Salt, and Reed published as Carol. And I like The Sweet Sickness, which is about a, we would call it a stalker now. But in the novel, you're persuaded it's just a man in love with this woman, and you take ages <laughs> to understand, boy, she's really not in love with him. But it's very well done. So I love those ones. I like less as she goes on. Things like The Glass Cell is just bleak and unremitting. And Edith's Diary, which is being reissued and is being presented as if it's a very serious novel by Highsmith. It's not my favourite at all. I think she's better early on. Well, one, of the thing, one of the things I really loved about reading this was the confirmation it gave me of how perfectly you nail her voice <laughs> in The Crime Writer. I mean, she just... Her tone of voice, her... She inhabits that story. So, and you, coming back to when you're saying that she went to kill the snail in the garden to find out what it was like, this is, it's that, you don't really know whether she's going to commit mm. a murder or not. You know, what, what happens when, a, when somebody that writes about murder and about murderers getting off scot-free quite often, what happens when there's an opportunity for the writer to get involved with that? Well, that's the premise for this book. So I did kind of think it would be a novel within a novel. It would be a Patricia Highsmith novel enfolded in a novel by me. So she's writing a novel. She's writing a how-to-write fiction book while she's in Suffolk. And so she's doing that in my novel as well. It's slightly doing my head in. Um, but one of the things <laughs> about meta. the... Yes, exactly. The imitating, imitating of the voice that was problematic was in other books where I've done that so in The Great Lover there's a Rupert Brooke character and a Rupert Brooke voice and I could use his poetry and I could use his lines similarly with Edie Thompson in this I was forbidden to use a single Highsmith phrase really her estate was she's in, still in copyright and even if I'd accidentally used a line like I love my snails yeah it might have got me in trouble so it, it was an incredibly difficult Thing to try to get the voice I wanted without actually genuinely using a single sentence or even coupling that was Highsmith. I had to go through it over and over afterwards to make sure I hadn't accidentally used the metaphor that she had used, things like that. Wow. So if there was a residual Highsmith voice, I'm very pleased. In an early draft, it felt to me um, that there was more of the real things she said but actually, oddly, I think in taking them out, I still sort of, there's Highsmith in there. It feels to me she is. Highsmith, it's like, it's like feeling the ghost of Highsmith. I mean, I can smell the cigarettes. I can s smell the whiskey. I can feel the crunch of the snail shells under my feet. Oh, <laughs> well, that, what's been quite gratifying is I didn't ever meet her. She died in, I think it was 95, something like that. But I've since met quite a few people who have now. Um, 
And when they say, I got one very nice review in the Daily Mail, it was two pages by Craig Brown, who knew her very well, and did say it was quite a spooky version of her because it was so accurate. That was wow. pleasing, because I thought, well, he's exactly the sort of person you expect to say to you, you've got it wrong. You, I knew her and... She wasn't there. Yeah. Time. So that was kind of very gratifying. And I don't know what... That must be because she's very much present in her novels. That's what I yeah. think. So that's what I'm drawing on. And of course, the irony of, the, of calling it the crime writer... Because she was, a, she really rejected that effort, did. didn't she? She wanted to be a writer. She hated all labels. And um, she's often accused of being afraid to call herself a lesbian writer. But I think it's not um, perhaps understood in the right context. I mean, who would call Sarah Waters or Jeanette Winterson a lesbian writer? They are writers of great literary stature. And we don't just feel the need to label them. And if you're a white male heterosexual writer like Julian Barnes, who's ever described him as such? <laughs> so I understand her need to have no label, you know, just a writer. Whereas people keep trying. I was at a panel with Sophie Hannah on Saturday, and it, Sophie was insistent that Highsmith belongs in some subgenre, as if there's some desperate need to categorise everyone. You know, a subgenre of psychological fiction, let's say. I think it's fine just to want to be a writer, seems to me fair enough, without the labels of any kind. I think she does. And I think mm. you make a great case for that in, the, in, in, in this really, really wonderful book. We'll give away... Deep Water, no. fabulous read. Oh, there we go. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I think, unfortunately, that's pretty much all we've got time for. I just want to come back to you, something you were saying about your... Your father in thinking fiction is <laughs> fiction is lying, because there's something that you have uh, Patricia your you know your your Patricia Highsmith character saying in an interview which really struck me, which says, I think perhaps writing I think perhaps writing success successful fiction has a supernatural quality. I venture, she says, making people think believe something that may or may not be true, and one of the great triumphs of this book is that exploration of the very fine line between fact and fiction and that's what I'm dying for everybody to get into this book and have a a look at and tell me what you think so thank you very much thank you for listening to the books that built me podcast and thank you to sponsors Bollinger Tatler the club at Cafe Royal and to Prestat Chocolate for more about the books that built me visit the website, thebooksthatbuiltme.co.uk or follow us on Facebook, facebook.com backslash thebooksthatbuiltme.